The Commonwealth Parliamentary Association UK supports and strengthens parliamentary democracy throughout the Commonwealth. It focuses on key priority themes including women in Parliament, modern slavery, financial oversight, security and trade. Peer-to-peer -peer learning is central to the way CPA UK works, bringing together UK and Commonwealth parliamentarians and officials to share knowledge and learn from each other. For more information, go to www.uk-cpa.org. I'd like to welcome Rabina Jamil from Pakistan, Minister McGurk from Western Australia, and Julie Elliott, who's one of my colleagues here in Westminster. Here in the UK, right at the beginning of the pandemic, the government announced major funding for charities that support people who are victims of domestic abuse. Um, and it's good to be able to get together to talk about that across the Commonwealth uh, so that we can share the experiences that every country have had. Thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to speak on this topic. Actually, like most other countries, we have also experienced an increase in domestic violence in our country. We cannot actually quantify right now, but it, that is, the situation has definitely aggravated. It is serious. And since the onset of COVID-19, we have a lot of reported cases as far as domestic abuse is concerned. And uh, that is one of the reasons, as you have commented, that uh, critics are saying that it is one of the shadow pandemics that we are facing right now. It is really bad here, and the situation has worsened since the onset of this pandemic. Um, we've got a number of questions to go through, and uh, I'd like to start by just really posing the question as to what has been the biggest impact our COVID-19 has had on domestic abuse and how have the lockdown measures that have been put in place in each of these countries impacted on this? Lockdown means restricting movement and people have been stranded in their homes for days at a stretch. And that means that more time was av available to the habitual abuser who was just sitting at home, idle, doing nothing, and was also placed at close proximity with the potential victim. So with frustrations increasing, with the loss of work, lack of money, children not going to be able to go to school for regular schooling, and other factors all had a cumulative effect on the behavior of the abuser and ended up in more frustrations and more uh, cruelty in, uh, was being inflicted on the victim. So the lockdown has a, had a very adverse effect and a very negative impact on the domestic abuse that we were already facing in this country. We have a social problem here too. That is that women are not ready to uh, reach out for help because it is considered a social taboo here. And so that is the reason we have not been able to quantify the numbers exactly. And that has also been the reason why we had to take a lot of emergency measures and we had to send our women counselors to different areas to encourage the women to come forward. Mm -hmm. So this has had a very negative impact. Women have been in distress 
and because the men were sitting at home and uh, had nothing to do and the habitual ab abusers had uh, even more opportunity to you know to inflict uh, miseries i think the first week when lockdown was uh, introduced in this country although um, the act didn't exclude people leaving the home or anything like that in in circumstances the messaging on the media it sounded like that so the first week uh, of lockdown in the uk um, the biggest domestic violence uh, charity had more than a, a tenfold increase in calls um, because I think people, whatever kind of abuse they were suffering, felt that they would be breaking the law if they left the house. And I think that was the, the initial thing um, that came to light very, very quickly. And it led to the Home Secretary about six or seven days into the uh, lockdown actually specifically talking about domestic abuse victims being able to leave the home and go to somebody else's home, uh, which I think was very, very important. Um, so that, I think, in the UK was the biggest factor in the beginning. I think moving on from that, as the, the stats have gone through the roof, as they would when people are, you know, uh, together in a way that they wouldn't normally be. Um, I think one of the biggest problems has been um, charities who would do a lot of the support work in this area in the country being able to cope because charities' fundings have gone down and um, and just the sheer volume of, of, of incidents, um, they've, they've really struggled to cope. So I would say they, that's, that's really the biggest thing in this country at the beginning. And Simone, could um, I bring you in here? I mean, we've heard from Julie there how uh, the real pressures brought on by the lockdown have really changed uh, the, the uh, scale of the problem that was uh, faced by many of our local charities. And uh, I was wondering if you'd talk about the experience in, 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 in Western Australia. Yes, um, thanks a lot for the opportunity to talk about this because I think um, for a number of different reasons, the, the pandemic has um, sort of been, the, the nature of uh, the pandemic, the nature of our opportunities to communicate now have meant that we've been really, we have been able to look across the world and see how much we have in common. And this is a really good example of that. So one of the things that um, I noticed very early on is in regard to the COVID-19 was uh, commenting by the uh, Prime Minister and others at senior levels in government, state and federal for us in Australia, um, that domestic violence was of, of going to be of concern, that, that there was an appreciation that people being um, asked to stay in their homes uh, not only would give perpetrators an opportunity to exercise power and control, um, but the added pressures of financial threats of uh, possible infection uh, and, um, and just the inability for um, victims of, of uh, domestic abuse to, uh, to, you know, make a phone call in, in private um, were going to be curtailed. So that was the first thing, that there was an appreciation of this nationally very early on, and that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but for all the reasons that Julie outlined, uh, this has also added a lot of pressure. In fact, the statistics in Australia have been very um, lumpy, I think might be a good way of describing it. Uh, we, we're still really trying to understand uh, what, what the um, reporting to police seems to have gone up. I, I sit on our state emergency committee and uh, the, all other crime 
uh, statistics had reduced, except for domestic violence, including um, threatening behaviour. But uh, so that had gone up, but reporting to organisations was inconsistent. And another characteristic of uh, Australia's response to the pandemic has been a high level of cooperation between states and the federal government and uh, in, in real time. And that's been really um, uh, one of the reasons that we've been able to get on top of um, and, and keep low levels of infection and have a, a really coordinated response. Um, and similarly, we were able to meet with our state and federal counterparts to talk about domestic violence or domestic abuse. So, and we were hearing that from other states. Uh, uh, so I think that the, um, the data still is inconsistent, but our worst fears um, are being played out in what data we are seeing. And that is that there has been an increase in abuse. The final point I'll make is that um, the pandemic has shown us what we already knew, and that is that particularly for vulnerable cohorts, um, coming forward and seeking help into, in traditional mean, means to a women's refuge or to the police or to child protection authorities and the like, to a women's service, um, is often not effective. That's not the place that they will go for help. And we need to broaden our, our um, avenues for people to come and uh, seek assistance, for instance, to their GP, uh, to their local community centre, to a um, multicultural legal centre or the like. Uh, certainly something that we're very conscious of. Here in the West Australian Parliament this evening in Australia, I'm sitting in the Aboriginal People's Room, so I've got some beautiful art behind us, but for Aboriginal people, very uh, those women are very disproportionately impacted by domestic violence, and we really have to uh, look a lot more um, fundamentally at the avenues that, that those women are given to come forward and seek help. What has been particularly concerning in the UK has been the increased number of women killed um, in their homes during the lockdown. And uh, what charities are telling us is that all too often the women they're supporting don't have access to a telephone to be able to contact them for help. Some charities estimate that one in four women that they support don't have access to a telephone. So that sense of isolation is, is really profound. That is very true. But uh, if I may add here that fortunately, we have not had as many killings reported due to this. Because I think uh, most of the women and the men are going out for work. And maybe that reduced the chances to some extent. The killings were not there, but the um, uh, domestic abuse was definitely there. And domestic cases. Yeah, and, and domestic abuse comes in so many different forms. Yes. Um, what, what we've tried to do in the UK is to make sure that we, we recognise that and that there are uh, the charitable organisations there to support people who are, who are suffering in this way. And certainly the incidence has increased significantly through the lockdown and we will need to be prepared to deal with um, the consequences of that once the lockdown has ended. Our country uh, it, it has meagre resources and uh, we also have uh, other problems related to all this, the social, economic, all the problems are interconnected. 
but the charity organizations are very effectively working here too like we as parliamentarians on our own collected a lot of funds and uh, took the uh, rations and distributed them to different families and this was a big help because individually and the charity organizations collectively did a lot of work here and that actually helped to ease up the situation Um, and moving on, what, what aspects of domestic abuse have needed to be addressed through new laws, through new legislation? Um, I'm particularly you know, specific laws addressing the issue in the rise of economic abuse. Yes, I think uh, one of the things that we've noticed during the pandemic is that if you were ready to implement something, uh, if you kind of had um, policies ready to go, that was a really good position to be in because we were able to expedite some of those policies. And this was a good example. The Attorney General and I had just introduced through the lower house of our state parliament a very comprehensive piece of law reform in relation to domestic abuse, and that included uh, a standalone offence for suffocation or attempted strangulation, a new category of offence called um, persistent family violence uh, offender, and that's uh, having a lower level of um, an evidentiary level that would be required. Just the nature of domestic abuse, sometimes it's difficult to remember what date and time and room a particular offence took place because it's become so normalised. Um, and we already have that, I'm sure the UK does too, in regard to child sex abuse, that um, the, the kind of strict tests of, um, of evidence are lowered in, in order to establish a pattern and accept a pattern of abuse. So uh, we had that in place and also similarly as serial family violence offender, and that's a higher level uh, of offence, but it can establish a pattern of behaviour where... Um, uh, if uh, parole is being considered or um, or bail conditions and the like can be a higher um, a higher test for very serious offences over over numerous different victims. So that's an example. So we were moving that comprehensive law reform through the parliament, but it hadn't got through our upper house. But we were able to pull out a number of elements of that law reform and expedite them. And that was in particular to make restraining orders, family violence restraining orders easier and less traumatic for, um, for victims to obtain. And so seems obvious, but uh, they can be um, applied for electronically by legal services. Um, the breaches for restraining orders, um, for breaching a restraining order, uh, the fines have gone up significantly. And also that uh, electronic monitoring could be used um, for um, the courts and uh, bail conditions and the like. So we just thought they were very practical things that we could bring forward and we've been able to get that through bipartisan support, which is appreciated. And it's quite interesting, actually, Julie, isn't it, thinking about our own situation here in the UK, where it was interesting that it was actually the domestic abuse bill that was brought uh, to second reading in the House of Commons during the lockdown. Um, and uh, although complete progress hasn't been possible on that because of a lack of procedures for taking votes in the House of Lords. Um, is there anything that you um, feel that was, um, I, 
there or lacking maybe in the response of the government to a legislative approach to this? Or do you think that the laws that we had in place already really covered most eventualities? What, what was your impression, Julie? Well, I, I think um, I think the COVID Act, the, the Act dealing with the pandemic, it had enabling powers so you could alter mm. or bring in things at any point, which I think was absolutely essential. And that went through Parliament really just without disagreement. There was no real, it, it was an act that needed to happen to allow the government to be able to do things as and when it needed to do to deal with the pandemic. It is, it's quite ironic that the, the domestic uh, abuse bill was already going through Parliament. I mean, it got a bit log jammed at the end of last year. And although there's issues between the parties on, on some of the minute detail of, of funding, there is actually quite broad agreement on, on the thrust of the bill. It's not a controversial bill. Um, the things in there are things that I think most people involved in this area of policy agree need to happen. Um, so no, I, th I don't think legislatively there was a massive problem in, in the UK. I think um, I think it probably didn't get the prominence in in briefings early early on. I think anybody involved in this area of policy knew it was going to be an issue um, because quite clearly, if you are forced into a situation, um, I mean, for, for families who don't have any issues to start with, being forced to live all the time in the house, you know, that's caused friction in the best of, of relationships and households. So for anybody where there was this kind of issue, um, I think that in itself, people knew that that would be a problem and it probably wasn't discussed and promoted enough in the beginning. I, I just wanted to come back to something Simone said about um, about reporting and I think you know the, the stats in this country have been interesting through the pandemic very different from one police force area to another police force area but I think the very fact that as we said before somebody can't pick up the phone and ring as easily can't find a safe place to do that we wouldn't expect a real spike in police stats at this point I think they will come down the line and a lot of things that come out down the line will will look back at incidents that occurred during this period I think that's very interesting, Julie. I mean, certainly what I've been impressed by is the way in which the police, certainly, I mean, in my own area, and I, I think more generally, the police have got a very acute awareness of the issue of domestic abuse. Absolutely. A huge amount of work done over many years by Theresa May, both as Home Secretary and then as Prime Minister. Uh, but uh, it, when, it, when it came to the lockdown itself, uh, so many women found it difficult to call out for help. Um, and, and I was quite shocked by the statistic from one organisation which said that uh, a quarter of their the people they supported simply didn't have a mobile phone. Um, and you realise how coercive control actually comes into play. And obviously that's, it's, it's very important that we now recognise that as a form of, of domestic abuse. Um, and, and certainly the police very much recognise that. Yes, I would like to add here that it is uh, legislation is a rather slow and time-consuming process. When, with the onset of uh, COVID-19, we were not prepared for all this. So, uh, you know, it was something new to all of us. So the thing is that our uh, Minister for Human Rights introduced a helpline to uh, uh, for uh, the victims who could reach out and call for help uh, during this time. And this helpline also has another force, additional force, which is called the Rapid Action Force for quick response. 
Now, these people reach the sane or the effectives very quickly, and they provide any security or um, medical assistance if needed. So this was one of the measures, emergency measures, which was taken by the government. The, a special helpline was uh, created for this. So this is also effective right now. And, 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 uh, and, and it's a similar response to the response that we've taken in the UK, which is to make sure that specialist help is more available. Um, in the UK, we tend to use the charitable sector in my own constituency. An organisation called Stop a Bit Domestic Abuse has been running an extended helpline to try and make sure that women have got a place to, to go to, to, to ask for assistance. But in those instances where a woman is subject to extreme pressure not to contact outside organisations, lockdown has really become made it even more difficult to make that telephone call. So I know that my own local charity in Hampshire has used Facebook um, and as many different forms of social media to allow women to reach out for that help. Um, certainly the UK government has worked hard in recent years to, to get that legislation in place um, to recognise different forms of domestic abuse. And, and I have been impressed with the way in which the police have taken that issue seriously too. Um, so I agree with you completely that legislation in these emergency times can be difficult. Um, and trying to get that framework in place for these eventualities is, is, is the best way uh, rather than trying to put it in place at the time. But it, it, it really depends on, on what's needed in each country. Yes, our social welfare department, which is working under the Human Rights Ministry, does the same kind of work. We uh, shift the women to a safer place and they, they are given more security, and those places are called Darul Amams in our own country. There, they are given all kinds of security, food, and of course, comfort. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things which has uh, been there since many years also, and we are still working on it. We need to do a lot more on that, if that's agreed, definitely. But uh, the things which are, the facilities which are already available, include that to the women and children in our country. And we have the Child Protection Bureau also, where the children and the women are shifted after they are victimized. That is working very effectively throughout the country. Simone, could I just come back to you on that? I mean, are you, in Australia, do you feel that your bedrock of law in this area on domestic abuse is where it, it needs to be? Or, or do you think as a result of the pandemic, you'll be doing more work on this? As I said, uh, we're just in our state putting forward quite a comprehensive bill. And uh, I think we've picked up many of the uh, issues that we need to. Um, there's a whole lot of work to be done across all jurisdictions. And if we think about the framework, we talk about um, making sure victims are safe and that point about making sure that there are alternative places and multiple places for people to come forward and get assistance uh, and holding perpetrators to account, uh, the work on perpetrators, um, making sure that there's 
um, programs for them and assistance if they're prepared to change. It's an incredibly complex area, an emerging area, and a huge need for that. And also not to lose sight of the perpetrator in our efforts to make sure we have a risk-based line of um, uh, line of sight onto those perpetrators. The point that you're raising, um, uh, Maria, in relation to making sure we have a responsive justice system, and that means that our uh, law enforcement agencies, which um, despite our best efforts are still overwhelmingly male. Uh, but um, I certainly, for, from our state's point of view, are, are really making some big efforts to change the way that they're working and to um, look at their own codes of um, operation to make sure that they're effective. And, um, and, and obviously the courts as well. So our statute books and also the uh, awareness of the judiciary of the particular dynamics and of um, domestic abuse is um, that there's a, there's a sophisticated appreciation of, of that amongst the judiciary. Uh, and then the final uh, efforts need to be in stopping the abuse occurring in the first place, primary prevention. Um, so they're the sort of, that's the framework that we use. There's work to be done all along those, uh, all those different um, areas of work. And, um, and I think we need to view this in the long, as a long game. Uh, and uh, that's not to say that it's not urgent. Of course it is. And for Australia, we had a very shocking um, multiple um, homicide just before the pandemic. So a woman uh, in suburban Brisbane and her uh, children were burnt alive by um, her partner and the children's father, and then he killed himself. And it was shocking for the whole country. Uh, and we were sort of reeling from that when the pandemic hit. Uh, so, you know, and I'm sure the UK is the same. I mean, the, um, to honour those, um, those victims, but also to um, make sure that we continue to use evidence. We have a discussion about what what are the ways that we embed these changes in different cultural settings, um, but also in all of our systems? It's a real challenge. And law reform is part of that. Um, but as I said, I think it is only part of that. Uh, I just wanted to comment on this, that we need to do a lot more as far as COVID-19 is concerned. We, uh, since, uh, as I said before, this is something new to all of us globally. So we need to collect more data. We need to encourage people to come forward. We need to definitely spend more time in planning because the situation can aggravate and exasperate at any time. So it is very essential that we put our heads together, uh, even as a world community, what we can, can solve these issues. And, and we've been talking about uh, domestic abuse, a crime that does disproportionately affect women. And indeed, this is a the pandemic and the fallout from it and the economic impact of the pandemic is, is likely to, for the first time, certainly in the UK, to disproportionately affect women uh, because of the way uh, it's impacting different particular sectors of employment. Um, I, I'm interested to hear from both of you as to how you feel members of parliament like us can advocate for more sensitivity in the way that decision making is made in emergency responses, uh, sensitivity around the fact that women 
um, and other other uh, protected groups might be differently impacted to to the general population. Is that is that something which we need to work harder on? And, and if so, how can we do that? Um, Julie, thinking about our, our Westminster Parliament, uh, uh, Labour Party's now got more than half women as its MPs, but we still, as a body, are overwhelmingly male. Mm. Um, how can we get women's voices heard more? Yes, I think, I mean, although we've made massive strides in the number of women across all parties now um, in Westminster, it's still very much dominated by men. There's no doubt about that. But it's for me, it's about keeping keeping it up the agenda and talking about it and talking about it. I mean, yes, horrific cases like Simone mentioned, you know, we can all think of horrific cases like that. And we owe it to the people who've died in these situations to not uh, just let it be swept away. Um, but I think you have to look at this very calmly and just keep it up the agenda. And we can also refer to, you know, situations in the past, in, in the last 20, 30 years, when there's been massive downturns in the economy, all the evidence shows that domestic abuse goes up massively. Um, and it goes up massively in, in more vulnerable communities, more so than, than others. Um, you know, I live in an area that is, is fairly poor in the main. Um, it's, uh, it's not a hugely affluent area. And I know when there's been big economic downturns in the past, domestic abuse has gone up massively. So I think keeping the pressure on government to make sure they fund both local authorities and charities through the various uh, funding streams to be able to let them deal. They've got the expertise, they've got the knowledge on the ground. And I think one of the beauties of the way our system works in this country is that local authorities, police forces, charities, all of the people involved on the ground know the system, they know their communities, and they are the best people to deal with this. I don't think Westminster is the best place to deal with it. What Westminster needs to do is keep it on the agenda, have the right support legislation there, and also um, give the funding to the people who can really deliver on the ground and make a difference. Well, as the parliamentarians uh, to advocate the gender sensitive approach, we have the Women's Parliamentary Caucus here. It is headed by uh, one of our senior parliamentarians, Munaza Hassan. Who, is, uh, who has always led from, from the front very proactively. Here in this parliamentary caucus, we hold in-depth discussions, meetings, and the female parliamentarians from other parties, even the opposition are included. We all have this forum, very useful forum for us, where we can sit together and we can discuss all kinds of issues related to women and children, particularly. Many bills for the protection of women and children have already been recommended and approved by the Women's Parliamentary Caucus. Through the WPC, as legislators, we get an opportunity to express our concerns and raise our voices collectively against any injustice, if any. So this is one of the best opportunities that we could get as parliamentarians. Mm -hmm. And that's a very constructive way of, of raising issues and showing the importance of addressing them. And despite maybe being fewer in number, you can be stronger in voice. Yes, that is what I, 
I'm trying to emphasize that if we raise our voices collectively, we, we have our say. And uh, that's how we have been getting things done here because we uh, have not been able to achieve the kind of uh, representation that we should have been given. Absolutely. But uh, women are striving very hard to empower women. The, particularly the lawmakers, the, and the MPs, the MNAs that we have here, members of the National Assembly, who are always striving to do this. And it is very important that we have more female voices who can stand up and uh, uh, raise their voices against any injustice. Well, I think that's a very powerful model, which um, it's really helpful to, to, to hear about. And particularly as we're trying to respond to a pandemic, which certainly in, in my country will disproportionately affect women. Um, it's it's important that we can enable women's voices to be heard very clearly. How about you, Simone, in, in Australia? How do you make sure that, that women's voices are, are really heard and that, that we do get this gender-sensitive approach to decision-making in emergency responses? Yes, this is a really um, live debate for um us in the state, in Western, in, in Western Australia, but also in the country. And um, from what I can gather internationally, a number of jurisdictions are looking at what does recovery look like and how do we make sure that we're looking at stimulus dollars, for instance. Uh, it's easy to look at hard hats and infrastructure projects that are not recurrent funding. Um, and that's where that's always been the go-to. And of course, women are not concentrated in those areas of work. Uh, the areas that where there is demand and where women are concentrated are in the service and care sectors, and that's a lot more challenging. Um, but like any problem, the first uh, step to overcoming it is to admit that you've got a problem. So I think awareness is, is a good start. Uh, and um, I also think um, I've been really heartened. I, I don't know what the mood is in the UK, but in Australia, I would say that we're quite proud of the way that we've managed the um, pandemic and we've had less, we've just had just over 100 deaths across the country. Um, I think in Western Australia now there were two live cases. Um, we have no community transmission. Now, you know, we have the luxury of a, the scale of our population and we're in an island and all of those sorts of things and a huge, there has been a huge economic impact, no doubt about it. Um, but I suppose um, people are looking at the challenges of the pandemic but also the pluses, I suppose, or the things that have worked. And that is that we can, we're really um, capable of doing some brave things and some incredible things when we set our minds to it. Uh, we've been, we've acted incredibly swiftly um, across the world because we had to, um, because early intervention was necessary, because the alternative was. And I think we should be heartened by that, we should be energised by that. Uh, and, and that if we really have a will, uh, we certainly have the capacity um, to understand what needs to occur and uh, just to keep a, a focus and make sure, as, um, as Julie said, that women are at the forefront, particularly the economic recovery, but also what uh, I think UN women termed uh, the need for us to be vigilant around the shadow pandemic of violence um, against women and children. Uh, you know, we, we have made some gains. If we're not careful, um, the pandemic will lock in disadvantage, will lock in women's gender pay gap and the like. But as I said, there's also um, cautious 
uh, cause for optimism if we look at what we are capable of doing, and that is to let's take the opportunities here, uh, let's press the case uh, and, uh, and not stop. And um, in regard to domestic violence, victims, um, certainly those that have been killed, but all victims deserve the, our best efforts. Uh, and also the girls coming through uh, in the next generation deserve our best efforts too. Thank you for that. And, and certainly in the UK, uh, the impact of the virus on our population has been far, far higher than it has in Australia. But then we have such a high density island population um, and it's certainly uh, created significant challenges as a result. And, and I think it's very apt that in a week where we're remembering uh, one of our former colleagues, Joe Cox, who spoke very much about um, what, you know, the things that we share in common as opposed to the things that divide us. I think organisations like uh, the Commonwealth uh, Parliament, uh, the Commonwealth Women's Parliamentarian Organisation can help us share those sorts of experiences across the globe and I, and I hope one of the real learnings from this is how we can use technology to share those experiences more regularly. Well that's been a really fascinating conversation about the response in, uh, in your country and to hear how you're really focusing uh, the policies that will support women the most at the, in these very difficult times. Thank you very much.